Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Luke 15, 11 to 32. I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a different country, distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. So today is Palm Sunday. This is the day when, as you've heard, traditionally we welcome, we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was on this day, a couple thousand years ago now, that crowds lined the streets to welcome this king. But most did not realize who it was they were welcoming. They anticipated a military leader, someone who would break off the shackles of Rome. They didn't know the one they were throwing down their cloaks to welcome was God himself. A God who wasn't coming with military might to crush their enemies, but one who would allow himself to be sacrificed to gain for them something that they actually needed even more. Often God is not who we expect God to be. 
I remember I was reading an article recently, and the author reflected that these days, people aren't so much asking the question of whether or not God is real, but whether or not God is good. As we live in the shadow of residential schools amidst stories of injustice and prejudice, and as we're quick to draw lines in the sand marking who's in and who's out, it's easy to see why some people might question the goodness of God. Yes, they might nod their heads, Jesus made a way for us to know God, but is this the kind of God they would even want to know if they could? Both those living at the time of the first Palm Sunday and us today sometimes need to have our perception of God refocused. Sadly, it's true that the church itself over the years has been party to evil that it needs to repent of. But does the Christian God live up to all the bad press he's received? Or have we just bought into the fake news out there about what God is like and about what the call to follow Jesus is all about? I think the best way to get to the bottom of this is to look at Jesus himself, God made flesh. He said that to see him was to see the Father. I and the Father are one, said Jesus. And so we can find out a lot by looking both at how he lived and at what he taught. Now, if you've spent any time reading the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus often taught in parables, in stories. As humans, there's something about stories that speak to us, that capture our attention. Parables are stories that invite us to search for answers. And in doing so, they weed out those who weren't looking for answers in the first place from those who are looking for truth. Theologian Kenneth Bailey describes parables in this way. He talks about them as houses, houses that we inhabit for a while and which allow us to see the world from a different perspective. And I really like this image. As we immerse ourselves in a parable, it gives us a new point of view and we can look out the various windows to see what the world looks like from that vantage point. Now, one of the most well-known parables that you've just heard is the one found in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And this is what we're gonna look at today. Although we might want to rename it the parable of the unexpected God, because God is often different from what we expect. So let's enter into this story together. Let's settle down in a chair on the front porch and take a look at what the world and what God looks like from this vantage point. Let me tell you a story. There was once a man who had two sons, an older and a younger. Now this family didn't live in 21st century Vancouver like we do today, but 2,000 years ago now in the Middle East. So instead of snow-capped mountains and misty rain, you might want to picture dusty roads, date palms, and olive groves. One day, the younger of the two sons comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. I think today it's more common sometimes for parents to give their children a portion of the inheritance before they die in order to avoid certain taxes. But this was not a practice at the time and certainly not what was going on here. This son's request was like a slap in the face. It was more like if he said, Dad, let's plan your funeral, or why don't we put the house in my name so I can sell it out from under you? He was expressing that he had absolutely no use for his father beyond what he could get from him, 
father, he was saying, I wish that you were already dead because my life would be a lot better without you. Can you imagine saying something like this to your own father? How about saying something like this to God? God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm just going to live as if you didn't exist. Kenneth Bailey, in his commentary on this parable, believes that this is actually getting at the core of what sin is. For Jesus, he writes, sin is desiring the death of God and wanting to take his gifts without reference to the giver. It's wanting to make it completely on our own. It's the shattering of a relationship. It's this son's complete rejection of his father. Now, I don't know about you, but what I would anticipate this father's reaction would be would be one of anger and outrage and just probably saying no to his son, but that's not what happened. We simply read, so he divided his property between them. So both sons receive an early inheritance. The property and lands are made out in each of their names. But while the older son stays on the, working on the estate, the younger takes it a step further. We read, the younger son got together all he had, which basically means he sold off the property he received and his portion of the family business as well. While the older son remained, the younger got rid of it all. So now this was no longer just a private family matter, but a very public one. Everyone would have known. I'm sure it was the topic of gossip at the local coffee shop. How embarrassing for this respected patriarch to have had such a son, and expressions of relief that at least their children hadn't done such a thing. And so the son leaves, and we learn that he goes to a distant country and squanders all his wealth on wild living. Maybe he went to somewhere like Vegas, hired some prostitutes and gambled the rest away. When all the money is finally gone, there comes a famine in the place where he is. Now, in Vancouver today, we don't experience famines very often. But you might want to picture a pandemic hitting and the son being unable to find work, or food prices shooting sky high that he can no longer afford what he needs to live. So being desperate, he just takes whatever job he can find, which in this case is one feeding pigs, maybe the most degrading job for a Jewish person at that time, given that pigs are unclean. And despite having this job, he's still starving, even unable to eat the food that's given to the pigs. One day, while going about his job, heading out to feed the pigs, he starts to think back to where he grew up and what it was like living in his father's house. And he has this moment of clarity. Even his father's servants have enough to eat, and here he is starving to death. What if he was to go back and just suggest being a servant in his father's house? At least he'd be better off than he is now. And he begins to rehearse what he might say. I'll say to him, I think, he thinks, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now this speech might have brought to mind another speech to those listening at the time given at another time by another unrepentant person. Early on in the history of Israel, God sent a man named Moses to the Egyptian Pharaoh with a request to free his enslaved people. 
Pharaoh repeatedly says no, and God sends plague after plague. And Pharaoh keeps seeming to change his mind and says he'll let them go, and at the last minute, he won't let them go. After a devastating plague of locusts, for example, Pharaoh says to Moses in Exodus 10, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. These words were hollow. He was only saying what he needed to say to get what he wanted. And so was this younger son. His choice of words show that at this point, there's no real repentance. He doesn't want to fix his relationship with his father. He's just trying to get what he wants. Father, he rehearses to himself, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But despite his mixed motivations, it sends him home. I wonder if sometimes that's the case for us when it comes to God. People look for God for a lot of different reasons, but it seems like it's often when we reach the end of ourselves. When there's absolutely no alternative, that's when we call out to him. When life is good and we're comfortable, we may not see a need for God. We're handling things just fine on our own, thank you very much. But when illness or death or pandemics or wars hit and we don't know what else to do, that's when we pray and risk asking for the help that we can't give ourselves. God, I I know I don't deserve to have you listen to me. I haven't spoken to you in years, but if you are there, please help. But even if this is our motivation, I think that's okay. Because whatever the reason is that we travel back to God, the outcome is the same. And this next part of our story will tell us why. So back to our story. The younger son makes this long trip home, one that I'm sure is was even harder because of the famine. And he rehearses his speech over and over, practicing his posture of humility. And as he's finally nearing home, but while he was still a good distance away, his father sees him. You know, I wonder if he was watching, keeping an eye out day after day, just in case this son might decide to come home. And he's filled with with compassion, and he runs to his son. This highly respected Middle Eastern patriarch, in a very undignified way, lifts up his cloak and sprints towards his son. Reaching him, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. Now, the younger son, taken by surprise, starts to stumble through his prepared speech, well, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. But before he can even finish, his father interrupts and says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And he prepares to throw a party. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and the party begins. Let's stop here for just a moment and observe the scene from our front porch view. Food is cooking and you can smell the roasting meat. The neighbors are beginning to trickle by bit by bit and the music and dancing is just starting up. What would you say is your image of God? When you think about God, what comes to mind? Do you picture a God who doesn't care when people suffer, who sees wars and says good riddance, or maybe a taskmaster 
who worries about whether or not you are following all the rules? An angry judge? Or someone who likes to throw lavish parties for wayward children? In the Bible, God is often referred to as a father. And I think that some of us can have a hard time with this if we've struggled with our own fathers. For some of us too, even as women, even sometimes God being compared to a man might not have the most positive connotations. And yet, as I was reading in preparation for this sermon, one thing I read just leaped out to me. Bailey writes that scripture makes clear that God is not like a father, but rather like this father. This is the kind of father God is like. Often God is not who we expect God to be. I think that Jesus knows that we can struggle with our view of God. From the moment of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and throughout the centuries, people have struggled to wrap their minds around what God is really like. And here Jesus wants to set the record straight. God is just not like any father. He's like this father. And what's this father like? He's full of compassion. Moved by compassion, he runs to his son, even after all he'd done and said, even after the shame he brought on the whole family. This father doesn't even wait to hear the whole apology before throwing a party. And in doing so, this father also defies stereotypes at that time. You'll notice that there was no mother in this story. That's because this father has the characteristics of both. Bailey writes, when the father runs down the road to welcome the prodigal, he's doing what a mother would normally do. The father is the parent who's expected to remain aloof in the house, waiting to hear what his wayward boy has to say for himself. The mother is permitted, even expected, to run down the road and shower the dear boy with kisses. Jesus gives us a portrait of a father who acts with the tender compassion of a mother a father who is also like a mother, a mother-like father. This is what God is like. What does this mean for us today? Knowing that God is compassionate is significant. It means that we can come to him at any point in our lives, no matter how we've lived or what we've done, trusting that his first response to us will be one of compassion. This parable shows us that we've never moved so far away from God that there's no way back. And now we're invited to show this same compassion to others. We too can be lavish with our forgiveness. But the story doesn't end there. It picks up with the elder son. And where is he? Well, we have to look away from the party to find him because he's not there. He's slowly coming in from the fields after a long day of work. And as he approaches the house and hears the music, he asks one of the servants what's going on. Your brother has come, the servant tells him, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Discovering that this party was for his younger brother, the one who had brought such shame and heartbreak on his family, he is angry and he refuses to come in the house. Now, as the respected older son, his absence would have been noticed by the guests. And when his father hears about this, he gets up from the table and leaves the party, a social faux pas as the host. And he goes out to where his son is and begs him to come inside. 
the older son, in his self-righteous anger, snaps back, look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father replies, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. We discover here that actually the older son was equally lost. He did everything right where his brother did everything wrong, but neither had a right relationship with their father. Bailey notes that both sons are lost and think that working will make them worthy of being in the father's household. The prodigal son wants to work his way back in, and the older son thinks he's deserving of, of more because he's worked so hard. But both of them miss the point. It was never about what they did or did not do. It was about simply accepting their father's love and the place they already possessed in his house as his children. For us today, too, doing the right thing all the time is not the same as having a relationship with God. Having grown up in the church, this is a trap that I find I get caught into. I put pressure on myself to do the right thing all the time. I know that I can't earn my way to God, but sometimes I think I live as if I could. And this misses the whole point. Jesus certainly never bothered to hang out with the right people or be in the right places or be seen doing what was expected of him. Why would he expect of us anything different? If you find yourself to be a rule keeper like me, how do we react when we see others welcomed into the church who haven't kept all the rules? Maybe these are people who don't fit our image of the picture-perfect Christian, but who have fallen in love with Jesus and are joining our community to get to know him more. Or people who've walked away from their faith for a time but have heard God's call to come back home. Or maybe those working through a whole range of personal struggles and are coming to church seeking to meet God in some way. Do we get angry and jealous because they haven't earned a place in our midst? because we think we deserve more. I think our response to this can show us where our hearts are at. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. The older son got his inheritance too. He didn't lose anything that he had by his younger son coming home. But we had to celebrate and be glad, the father says, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. The party was actually for the father, a way to express his joy at this prodigal's return, and he didn't want his older son to miss out. Again, it's the father who is spotlighted here. We see that not only is he characterized by compassion, but by costly initiative. It was costly for him to welcome that wayward son home, but it was also costly for him to leave the party to encourage his older son to come in. Publicly leaving a celebration to seek a son who had insulted him by not being present. To prioritize making things right. 
And along with compassion and costly initiative, here we see a father who invites his children to joy. He wants them to join the celebration. If sin is defined as wishing that God was dead and trying to make it on our own, repentance is accepting the welcome back. It means rejoining the party. It's saying yes to an invitation to joy, to accept a place in the family knowing that we don't have to work for it. Despite his mixed motives for returning, the prodigal son accepts his father's welcome and the relationship is restored. He joins the party. Whatever our motive is in coming back to God, we are welcome. God will cut off our stumbling apology mid-sentence and invite us to the party. And for those of us who have lost sight of God in our attempt to do everything right, he's calling us to leave the field for a time and join the party so that we don't forget we already possess the very thing we were working so hard for. And this is where the story ends. We aren't told what happens next. It's a cliffhanger in a way. Did the older son come in? Did the younger son stay home this time? If this was a Netflix show, I would definitely wait to just the beginning of the next episode to see what was gonna happen. But while we don't know the future choices of these sons, the image painted here of the father remains unchanging. In his compassion, in his costly initiative, and, his, and in his invitation to joy. And you know, I think if we stop and stare at this father long and hard enough, maybe he starts to look like someone else. Someone else who invited, who offered compassion to those who were unwelcome. Someone else who took the most costly initiative of all. As we gaze at this image of the Father, maybe we see some of the years start to fall away and the beard darkens, and we realize that standing before us is Jesus himself. What does all this mean for us today? It shows us that God has compassion for our, our life circumstances. Whatever we've been struggling with, whatever our background or baggage, we can come to God knowing that compassion will be his first response. We see this compassion in Jesus himself. On that very first Palm Sunday, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to a cheering crowd, what's the first thing he does when he gets to the city? He weeps. We see Jesus in Luke 19 crying over Jerusalem weeping over the blindness of the people, even those who are about to put him to death. This parable also shows us that God takes costly initiative. Jesus himself went out of his way to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And ultimately, on Good Friday, which is coming up later this week, he gave up his life on the cross to make relationship with God even possible for us. And his initiative continues today. In my own life, I've certainly experienced moments of what seem to be divine initiative. These come in the form of conversations, unexpected events, or maybe like with the prodigal son, these moments of clarity where we're reminded that God is there. Let's pay attention to God's intervention and initiative in our lives. And finally, it shows us that God loves to celebrate to invite us back to joy. 
The book of James, he writes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. There is a lot of hardship in our world, but the author of the good in the midst of it is God himself, the good of community, of family, and of relationships. God provides a home to return to in the midst of famine. This parable shows us that God is often not who we expect God to be. God is a compassionate, mother-like father who takes costly initiative to make sure that none of his children miss the party. He takes the initiative to bring us back to joy. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for buying into any untruths we believe about what you are like. Help us to see you as you really are and to accept the welcome that you extend to us. Thank you for your love and your compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.